Murray here with Drew Stedman, and welcome to the Ideology Podcast. Last week, we had a mouthful for a title, The Problem With, The Problem With Evangelicalism, and encourage you to go back and take a listen to that if you haven't already. And today, we are going to have a bit more of a, a dialogue around the general idea of hope and some of the trends that we see happening in the world with regard to the church and beyond. And so, Drew, why don't you uh, tee us up for a conversation around hope? Thanks, Mick. Yeah, today we'll, we'll be a little bit different than maybe normal ideology flow where we tackle a distinct topic and try to analyze it. And really, today is going to be more of conversation um, just between the two of us where we're going to share some thoughts on what are some things that inspire us, that encourage us about God's working through the church, and how might that you know filter down into our daily lives as we make sense of the world that we're in. I will say this, that though it is important at time to critique, and you know we certainly do that where we look at ideas in our world that are potentially harmful, or, or at least maybe not helping the growth of the believer and critiquing them, what I have found is it's much harder to construct that is always the challenge and you know my encouragement to anybody if you're involved in academic work or just in general analyzing culture church world uh, taking space to figure out you know it's easy to critique it's easy to spot the problems but then how do we turn that around and start to construct so neither of us are going to claim that we've we've figured out what can you know <laughs> rebuilding the house looks like um, but i think there are some ideas that that will help us with that yeah, Drew, I think another theme that crops up frequently in our podcast, if you know, if you've been listening for any length of time, is just what you said, just that that notion that it is harder to construct than to deconstruct. If you go all the way back to our first couple episodes, I gave the illustration early on that there was a building that was being constructed close to our house. We watched it you know, be built for uh, over the period of three or four years. And for the first year and a half, it seemed like they were just digging the foundation and I don't know all the the terminology, but the pylons are those, you know, those piers that go down deep into the ground and, and then the, the careful construction over time to now have this big uh, event space. And I was just driving by it one day and I was thinking, you know, it's taken them three years or more to construct this building. It would take me about an hour or less to deconstruct it. You know, if I had the right tools, I could make quick work of deconstructing it. And I just remember thinking about that. This is 2020 and all the quote unquote deconstruction that was happening around me and, and thinking, you know, it's so easy to, to take pot shots. It's so easy to tear down ideas, but there are very few people that are, that are taking the effort and expending the energy to build, to construct, to think deeply, to, to carefully reconstruct after deconstructing. And I know we talk a lot about the church and that's our world, Drew, and it's so hard. And I tell our pastors in our movement consistently that you're my heroes, that you're still standing after all of the all of the accusations, all of the the arrows that have come at pastors over the past several years. So yeah, this is a an admonition again, a call to the church to be those who build up, who construct. And, and yes, there are times when it is appropriate to think critically, to deconstruct, so to speak, to and to analyze, to call out the faults. Uh, but may we be those who then on the back side of that expend the energy to build back up in its place. So let me start with my first idea that gives me a lot of hope, and that is the recognition that God is the primary agent in the world. 
it's so funny because that's like really basic, you know, probably at a theological level of, you know, God is big and God is active. But there is something to be said of, I, I, I think I've been trained in at least modern American culture to live as though things depend upon me and that it's my action, it's my intellect, it's my effort, uh, whatever the case may be. And I, I'm the one who makes something happen or we are the ones who make something happen. And so we can carry the world that way that, you know, all the problems in the world are ours to solve. And uh, there is certainly a truth that we all have a responsibility to partner with God and to do our part. And so it's not its not to say I'm advocating a swing to, you know, it's all up to God and it's this form of fatalism. But something that's been really helpful for me, though, over the last couple of years has been studying and looking, even historically, looking theologically, that over and over again, it's God is the one who acts and he acts in and through us and our participation, and that maybe is even a primary way that he acts, but he is the agent that spurs the change, and often he's doing things above and beyond what I'm able to comprehend, and so though I am playing a part in it, I I am not able to see the whole story, nor am I able to do the whole story, and it struck me again this morning doing an Advent reading with my kids before I came into work, and I'm reading the story of Zechariah and the angel, you know, and if you're not familiar with it, you can find it in Luke chapter one, I think verses maybe 14 through 20 or some 25, something like that. And, and it's the story of this man. He's a priest. He goes into the temple and then suddenly out of the blue, there's the angel of the Lord standing in the temple telling him your wife is going to have a kid. And he doesn't even believe, you know, the angel and the angel has to be like, I'm Gabriel, you know, I stand in the presence of God and you're not going to even talk anymore, you know. And it's funny because you read the story and on the one hand, it almost seems harsh, like this guy, you know, he can't talk now for nine months. But the story is about the mercy of God. It's, you know, what he's believed for probably his entire adult life. There's a stunning miracle of his wife now having a child. And this is even more broadly heralding. Um, what Israel has waited for, for forever. And it's a stunning miracle of God is acting in the world to bring about his redemptive purposes. And yeah, this guy, Zechariah, like he got to be part of it. And, and so there is human participation. But even when he was invited to be part of it, he misread the moment and he had to be mute for nine months. And, you know, it's just, it's a funny story at one level. It's almost comical. But it underscored again to me that God is the one who's primarily acting. He is the agent. And and what that helps me with is I can take a step back and and live out of a place of rest and faith and trust, because I, I'm convinced that God is actually a lot better at this than we are, and that my attempts at helping him are probably not that helpful. And we've you know talked about that several times. For those who are here in Waco, or even part of the broader Antioch family, there's been this really powerful kind of prophetic metaphor um, that we've been using. It's this image of a person in a boat. And they're going along and they're rowing just with a ton of effort. And, and the image shifts and it's instead this, this shift in focus where rather than tiring yourself out rowing, it's instead taking your energy and learning, how do I, how do I instead lift up sails and I'm caught by the wind? And even more broadly, you know, this imagery of the ark. Um, and if you read that account in Genesis, there's no way to steer the ship. It's entirely led and guided by the current of the Lord and by the hand of the Lord. And I think that's something that, that resonates really deeply, at least with me, of this thought that I need to trust in God's agency. I need to have a deeper level of faith that he can do what he says he can do, that he sees the bigger story, that he knows how to direct. And I can freak myself out thinking I need to row and steer everywhere that we need to go. And, you know, I see these trends in cultures, I've got to fix them. I see problems in the church, i got to fix it. I see, you know, where, where I'm taking that on myself rather than instead taking a step back and and saying, God has been really good at leading his people for a really long time. 
and often acting in ways they did not foresee nor expect, even though we told them he was going to do it, they still didn't see it. And, um, you know, I'm certain that that's happening in our own day, just as it happened in the days of old. And so this thought of God's agency, I just feel any sketch we make of the future needs to be a primary thought. Yeah, it's difficult, though, as I'm listening to you, Drew. I think the reality is for this idea of God's agency being active in the world, to be a hopeful thought really has to be coupled with trust. And that metaphor of dropping the oars and hoisting the sails, the one time I've been sailing, it did. It required a lot of vigilance you know, to man the sails, to position them rightly, to be prepared at the, I don't know if it's called the, the tiller or whatever, just the position of the rudder. And, and I remember being on the Brazos River and we were sailing. There was three or four boats out there. We went out as a group of guys. And it was interesting that we were all within a relatively small amount of space, but at times it seemed like the wind would be blowing on the other side of the river and we were just sitting still. And then at other times we were humming along and, and the other boats were sitting still. And I, I think, especially as Americans that are used to having agency, used to you know, the independence, the ability to make things happen, the notion of, of being dependent upon God is, is a really difficult one to drop the oars, so to speak, to hoist the sails, to see other people moving and, and you're just sitting still. It feels at times like I'm being irresponsible. There's more I could do. And I've been reading more of the monastics recently and, and just, I, I find myself offended that different monastic orders will take so much time in prayer. Spent, I was reading one account recently. It's a current, uh, Benedictine monastic order up in the Northeast and they, spend four days in prayer and then three days serving their surrounding community. And I just, I, there's something in me, there's a, I don't know what it is, the independence, the workaholism, the, the Americanism, I don't know what it is, but the something in me is offended of how could you spend that much time in what appears to be idleness when there's so much to be done in the world. And so I, anyway, I, I could just see the notion of God's agency at, at a high level. It brings comfort that, yeah, God's active in the world, but at a functional level on a day-to-day basis, how do we find that balance between my responsibility to do things, to be active, God's responsibility to provide, to protect, to steer the the course of you know the events of my life? And curious how you tease that out for your own life and where that notion gives you solace or or hope for the future. It's funny you talk about your last experience sailing, Mick, because the last time I was in a sailboat, the tiller fell off the back. Just a different experience in, uh, in the whole trust department. Uh, I will say, though, the Lord did faithfully guide us to a section of shore where we could get off and found a way to fix it. It didn't fall all the way. Like, we still had the tiller, but it, we had to, like, repair the boat. Was this, like, discount sailing? <laughs> <laughs> it you? felt like about to die sailing, but uh, it was Lake Waco, so I guess that was pretty safe. It's a relatively contained place. The ocean would have been a little more scary. I, I still may be going. I don't know. No, I think I think you're right. I think it is a scary concept because I think we're taught from day one that you know the world depends upon us, and it's this concept that you know. And, and I, yeah, I appreciate you bringing in Israel because to me that is the central issue. I mean, I think it goes back all the way to. The garden, I think you see it expressed repeatedly as Israel is facing these these pressures on all sides. And so if you maybe take the desert wanderings as a metaphor of Israel's history, you know, we are vulnerable, we're tired, we're in a desert, we don't have sources of food that we can rely upon, we don't have sources of water that we can rely upon. There are powerful nations around us that threaten us. 
we're not in a position to fight them. And so if God does not come through, then we're really in trouble. And as you go further into Israel's history, I, I think we see the same thing, you know, of it's a very tempting and appealing option if Egypt or Babylon or somebody else will become your ally. Because now all of a sudden, it's not just upon our own self-reliance, but we have somebody out there that's big and can help us. And, and so there does seem to be this tension and this struggle and can we actually trust God? And, you know, I think that's where maybe if we were to get into the history of the church, there is a correspondence from what I can tell of times of relative poverty and vulnerability and revival movements and times of affluence and power seem to be pretty consistently indicators of a decline in the church. And I would posit that that's because of this issue, because, you know, we get to a certain point where we have enough that we feel like we can trust in ourselves and in our own power and strength. And it's not atheism. It's not us walking away from God, but it's also us saying, you know, to use the metaphor and take it out further, we built a really nice ship with a lot of places to row and we're pretty good at steering. And, you know, when you have that, that's really different than if you're me stuck in the middle of a lake and the tiller falls off the back. Like there's, there's a different level of trust there of even what options you have available to yourself. I think this is a as universal as a concept can be, but maybe more acute in our own day and age where we have an abnormal amount of power and technology and you know all types of other things where we, we live fairly insulated from the challenges of the world compared to past generations and natural events or whatever other things might happen. I, I think most of humanity has probably had to live with more events outside of their control relative to uh, you know the typical American. And so I, I do wonder if this might be a harder one for us maybe than most because we do have so much power and we have been taught so much to rely upon um, these other things. And so I, I resonate with that. I think that's why it both is giving me a lot of hope, but it also is a difficult concept to latch on to. And um, for me, you know, on the academic side of things, as I continue to pursue further research, this is an area I, I've been spending a lot of my time is this whole concept of divine action. Like what what actually does it mean when we talk about God acting in the world? And have we grappled with the reality of that, that God really is an active agent, that he really is moving, that he really is acting, leading, guiding? I mean, these are all active verbs rather than God maybe as a symbol or God as an entity that's removed from the world. In my mind, that that difference changes everything. It's a very different vision of the world and the possibilities in the world. You know, am I, as a Christian, have I been entrusted with religious truth and maybe access to religious material or even a type of forensic justification before God? But ultimately, it's up to me to put it all together and to maintain faithfulness. Or, and that would be a, that would be a situation where God could be seen as less active in the world. Or is God active in the world and in guiding and leading? And, you know, he is the one moving the church. He's the one bringing people together. He's the one prompting people's hearts to make them receptive to the gospel or convicting people's hearts, leading them into a process of sanctification, healing, delivering, restoring. You know, these are all very active world words. And, and so I'm trying to grapple with the reality of if I claim that God is active in the world, that should fundamentally alter my understanding of the world and the way that I live and the way that I embrace the church. So what's cool about this is that we we have the benefit of history. You know, I, I look back historically over and over again, and what I see is God breaking into the world in unexpected ways. And that, to me, is the history of revival. And, you know, maybe, maybe looking at this from another angle, I, I think at the point in time when we try to plan our revivals is, once again, maybe a sign of our decline a sign that we've lost a step because typically the the great movements of God 
they, they are perceived or maybe experienced as, as more spontaneous. And that's probably not the right word for it, but unexpected maybe. And I look at the events around Azusa um, or Mukti India, which happened about the same time and disconnected from one another, places in South Korea, Wales, um, you know, go back further to some of these revival movements on the American frontier. And, you know, if you go throughout history, it just seems like there are these times where the wind of God blows through the church and typically among the poor, and it typically catches people off guard, but it leads to stunning change. And I, I've tried to picture if I was alive at this time prior to these revival movements taking place, what would my outlook have been on the future? You know, maybe a lot less hopeful. And the point is that the people didn't know it was coming, and then God showed up and acted, and it was so far beyond what they could have thought. I mean, there's no way the people, as part of these early Pentecostal revivals, there's no way they could have known that within, you know, 125 years that this would represent a billion people, that it would spread to every continent, that it would be a critical driver behind these mass movements of the church happening simultaneously across a bunch of different previously non-Christian backgrounds, that it would flip entire continents in their affiliation. I mean, it's crazy, crazy what all happened. Yeah, to the people at that time, I would imagine that, you know, as they look forward to the world, that typically there are people in relative poverty and not a lot of power and up against a lot of social barriers. And it would be very easy to come under that and feel discouraged and depressed even. And, you know, but it, we don't factor in the acts of God. And so I can look at the way the world is going and I can see trends that are rightfully very alarming that should be cause of grief and alarm. But I'm not factoring in the fact that there's a God who acts in that same world, and that's not just pie-in-the-sky hope, that's a, a reality historically where he's done that repeatedly. And, and so what if I could orient my posture to anticipate his action and his leadership? Then I, I think that would fundamentally change my perspective. And I hear you associating hope with, in this instance, revivals where God is moving and awakening hearts to himself. I don't hear you necessarily talking about people's material circumstances improving. And I think a lot of times when we talk about hope, it is relegated to the temporal, it's relegated to the terrestrial, to our physical lives. So am I hearing you accurately? And, and of course, you know, as believers, we hope ultimately in the resurrection, the restoration of all things. And I think there's debate eschatologically when we look at the course of geopolitical events, are things getting better, are things getting worse? What should our expectation be on a personal level? You know, will things get better for me? Will they not? We see the saints in Hebrews, the hall of faith, Hebrews 11. Some saw the promise come to pass. Others were sawn in two. And I don't know, could you speak to that a little bit in terms of where you place your hope, Drew, and what you see in, in terms of these global trends and for the individual listening to this podcast that's facing financial crises or relational difficulties. And we talk about hope. You know, it's one thing to look back at these revivals of old. It's another thing to kind of stare at the challenges of life in the face. And I don't know, how would you kind of reconcile those thoughts? Uh, yeah, I think you answered it in the question. You know, I think hope first and foremost has to be in God himself. And it goes back to that issue of trust, of our hope is in who God is and his character. And that has to be what anchors us. Um, and then within that, our hope is ultimately uh, that we are citizens of the new heaven and the new earth, and that death is not the end of the story, and that that is where our hope is ultimately realized. And so what's powerful as a, uh, for us as believers, and I think maybe in my own life, I want to spend more time there because I want those to be the things that I look towards and that motivate me. 
um, rather than material circumstances. And yeah, I've been studying uh, Hebrews in my own personal devotion and just finished that chapter. And what struck me is that in chapter 11, um, the author is making the point, it seems, and, and really that whole hall of faith is all in support of one, fo- one main point, that, that faith is looking towards something that's not realized. And so all of those people, you know, if you go through the illustrations, the common thread is that there was a promise they believed for, and I would even say the majority of them never saw it while they were still living on the earth. And it was a promise yet to be realized in future generations. And so God was faithful to his promise, but they did not receive the benefit of experiencing that. Now, I I want to be careful there because I do think on an individual level, we will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And I, I think most saints of old, their life testimony is they saw God's goodness while they were in this life, often in the face of much difficulty, but their overall testimony is they found him, they experienced him. And I think for those of us who are in Christ, we, we, we do have this incredible privilege of now we get to live in the reality of our identity, which means we have direct access to God. We are citizens of heaven. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are saved, even as that fullness is not yet realized because we're still in this body of death, to use Paul's pretty graphic metaphor, you know, we are still in a world um, and in a body that's marked by sin. And, and so there is this, this tension that we live in, in this season of life, even though the, the reality of the future is, is present to us, it's not yet present to us in fullness. And so hope, you know, anytime we put hope in any kind of circumstance, then I think we're on dangerous ground. And that can be for sure when it comes to, you know, things like, our um, finances or, or something like that. But even more broadly, you know, when we look at the particular longevity of a of a, of one singular church or of, you know, other things that are fundamentally, I think, pretty good things, uh, our hope just can't be in anything that can be shaken. Um, and I think God's pretty clear in Scripture that He's going to shake things in the world. Wherever that fits eschatologically, I, I think that historically has certain, certainly been a reality of the things in this world that appear stable, that people put their hope in, tend to be shaken over time. And what that does is it causes us to find hope in something that will last. And that's the beauty is we have that in Christ. And so, you know, to me, that's the ultimate source of our hope. But then I'll I'll even take it further. I'm expressing hope for culture and for the church. And I'm expressing that hope because I'm saying, even though it's a reality that my life is secure in God and that I can trust him ultimately in all things and that he's good, even though that's a reality, I also believe that God is effectively leading the church in the world today and acting on behalf of his people to accomplish his purposes. And so it is a hope that I think is realized in this life. That does not mean that I'll get to see it with my own eyes. That does not mean that I will get to be a part of it. Could very well mean that, um, you know, what I deal with is kind of the aftermath of evangelical deconstruction that's happening in the world or, you know, whatever other trends worry us. And Instead, all across the world and other places, revival fires break out. And so it doesn't give me any guarantee on what my personal experience will be in that. But I can go to bed at night very hopeful that Jesus is really good at leading the church. And he's really good that the gospel might be expanded and preached to every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. And, you know, he's, he's very good at accomplishing his purposes. That, that allows me to be at peace and then to just ask the question, how do I participate and partner with him, do my part, and trust him towards that outcome? I was thinking of a talk I heard years ago by a friend of ours, Kelly Braswell, and he used to give this talk called The Seven Longings of the Human Heart. And he goes through you know, the deepest longings from connection to security and so on. And he makes the point that in his reading of scripture that God never allows us to fully realize the, the satisfaction of all of those longings this side of heaven because of the danger of putting our hope too squarely in this life and losing touch 
with the ultimate need for God and and the looking forward to resurrection, the new heavens, the new earth. And in part that frustrates me, but I, I see I see that in scripture. I understand the the talk, but that there would be something that's just always a little bit out of reach, uh, again, when it comes to the deepest needs of my heart being satisfied in this life. And, you know, we've talked about this before as well, but the empirical data that's available to us that our generation, uh, at least here in America, is the most prosperous, the most secure generation, arguably, in the history of the planet, that we are the most materially wealthy, that we we work the least, we have some of the lowest, you know, infant mortality rates, some of the highest literacy rates, and a, a lot of the metrics that are measured to assess quality of life. We enjoy some of the greatest, again, just material comfort of any generation that's ever lived, and yet the mental health crisis that's on our hands, the loneliness as just perusing headlines yesterday, and there was one about uh, loneliness in America, and 34% of adults, 34%, that's one in three, uh, admit to some degree of of loneliness in, in a clinical sense, and just an amazing statistic, and the depression, and the anxiety, and so there's, that should be, again, just empirically, that there, there should be a telltale sign that the hope that we place in material comfort in advantageous circumstances, at least our advan- to our advantage, that it's not a one-to-one. And there's something else that's going on. There's a deeper need. There's a deeper longing of the human heart to be connected to God, to have a hope that extends beyond just this life. Yeah, Mick, that's a, that's a great reminder. And I think that just in my own personal life, it's been interesting to see who are the people I've been around that seem to have the most joy and peace and stability and often they're not the people that I know that have the most power, prestige, wealth, th- those type of external metrics. And I don't want to diminish, obviously, physical poverty is, is a, a very, is a, is a real burden, as is illness, as is lack of access to power. So I'm not, I'm not saying that those are somehow a good. Um, I think we need to do what we can to help alleviate those and care for people. But what I, I like your point, I think what it's articulating is that those things are not a guarantee for us to have the hope, the happiness, and the peace that we long for, that that has to be found elsewhere. All right, so if, if this whole thought of God as agent is maybe the first thing that I, that I look to or we were talking about that gives us hope, let me give a second one, and that is the possibility of the church as the people of God. And, and to me, this is a place I've spent a lot of time because I, I have this formula, and some of you, maybe if you've heard me teach, I don't know if I've ever used this on the podcast, but I'll, I'll give this little formula, kind of condensing a whole host of sociological research down to this one little phrase, that you are necessarily shaped by culture. And then I'll follow that formula up by articulating something else I see looking at demographic data and my own anecdotal experience, that the culture around you is increasingly becoming non-Christian. So put those together. You are necessarily shaped by culture, and the culture around you is increasingly becoming non-Christian. And if you were to put an equal sign next to that, then that would lead to almost the inevitability of the decline of our faith, even within our own personal life. So let me summarize like this, this concept with, with a couple stories. So my family, the Stedman household, you know, we, we grew up as really diehard American football fans. That's our thing. My grandpa worked for the Kansas City Chiefs for his entire adult life. My dad worked for them for a while. I grew up in a football stadium. You know, that, that's so much a part of our identity and, you know, maybe how we oriented our schedule. 
and things like that. And my wife, Bethany, for those who know her, she grew up in Australia with almost no exposure to American football, and that was never her thing. You know, she doesn't have any memories of growing up watching a game or any of the types of things that I do. And so, you know, as we get married, um, she is really kind and tried to learn, but um, I'm still not convinced that she <laughs> knows the rules of football. And eventually it kind of became, you know, she might sit with me to watch a game for a while, but it wasn't due to any type of joy that she experiences in the sport. It was more just to, to be with me. And so we have four children. And, you know, in, in the course of raising our kids, it was interesting um, because at first I felt like our kids took on after Bethany. I would watch a football game. You know, we hardly watch any TV. So one of the few times we do is football. And so it's kind of a novelty and a kid would come just sit next to me to be close. And that's why they're there. But that's about it. And, you know, that, that was, I, I think, the status quo for several years in the Stedman house. But then a couple years ago, I remember one of my daughters, my second oldest daughter, sat down next to me. And it was at the time Baylor, which is my alma mater for college. Um, and all my college years did not have good football. Suddenly their football team's good and we're watching this game together. Um, it's, a, it's a good game. They're having a really good season. And for the first half of the game, she's just asking me questions, you know, learning the sport of football asking about the rules. And, and I would say about halftime, she's now like pretty good at understanding the game. She's, she's figured it out. As we go into the second half, now she's asking about strategies. She's starting to pick up not just what's happening, but the broader implications of the game. And then finally, by the fourth quarter, we're not talking anymore because she's got it. She's figured it out. Maybe every now and then she has to ask something and she is into it. She is now a, a Baylor fan and then the game goes to overtime, and it's this just incredible back and forth nail biter of a game, and it finally comes down to a play where it's a do or die moment. And you know, I, I am freaking out inside because there's like conference championship implications. I mean, it's it's wild. But then I'll never forget. I look over and I see my daughter, and she is sitting on our couch with a blanket over her head, and she is so worried that she can't bear to watch the game. And I just died, you know, laughing. I mean, part of me is you know completely feeling the same thing and wanting to join her in the pillow fort. But the other part of me is like, kid, four hours ago, you didn't even know the rules of football. Like you had no clue. Like, how is it that now emotionally you can't even handle to watch? And just a short while ago, this was not even a part of you at all. And, and you know, I thought about it. I, I reflected on it further. I was around the same time I was studying all this sociological stuff. And what it dawned on me is that my daughter's newfound love of football and Baylor fandom was not a choice that she made logically. It was instead a way that she was shaped by her culture. And, you know, if you live where I live, uh, Baylor's the, the big show in town. And so everywhere you go, you can't escape it. It's on the billboards. It's the shirts people wear. It's the small talk you make when you talk to your friends. The community is oriented around it. You go home and your dad is watching Baylor. It's just in the water. And over time, on the one hand, it seems so weird that like you would just suddenly one day become a football fan. Maybe another way of looking at it is that process was almost inevitable. Eventually, the surrounding culture was going to shape her into her fandom. And it's just in the water is maybe another way of saying it. And I think we're tempted to want to analyze that logically, but this was not logical. If we'd grown up in Australia, where uh, my wife is from, you know, it'd be a different type of football. And then if we had grown up in another city or if I went to a different university, let's say I'm a USC grad and I grew up in California, like it would maybe be the same net effect, but it'd be a different team. And it was never a conscious choice that she made. This was not a series of propositions about what sport to follow or what team to follow. Instead, it was shaped into her by her community. As I said earlier, it's just in the water. And that's a metaphor that we've used often. And so I think it does prompt the question, what else is in the water? 
And what are the other cultural things that necessarily shape us that at one level are inevitable because we exist and live in this culture? And so I want to pull it back to, to why I'm such, why I have hope because of, of my reflections on the church is I believe we've been granted a really powerful opportunity to create a new culture. You will be shaped by your surrounding culture no matter what, and you can't control that. But what you can control is what surrounding culture will shape you. And you know, to go back into my football metaphor, we're also diehard chief fans in the Stedman household. And so all the factors that work for us in, in following Baylor actually work against us because I live in Texas, and so everywhere I go, it's Dallas Cowboy stuff. But my kids are not Cowboy fans, and thank God, um, you know, they have a much better football experience by going for Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs. I, I welcome other people to join my bandwagon. But it's very simple, you know, it's very simple why my, my children are able to be Chiefs fans while surrounded by something else, by a surrounding culture. And that is the fact that the culture of my family is stronger than the culture of my city. And I'm able to create an alternative community, so to speak, in my own family so that my family can live differently than the dominant values of my surrounding culture. And, and I think that's the opportunity afforded to us in the church, is that we are an alternative community. And, and we have this opportunity. And I, I don't mean that in a sectarian sense where we withdraw from the world. I think there's a helpful interchange of ideas and culture that takes place. And I think there's an element even of human culture that's a beautiful thing that should be incorporated in church. And so it's not, it's not a wholesale rejection of culture, but it is an opportunity to say we don't have to go down the same road that everybody else does, but that will only happen when we create alternative communities. And that is fundamentally what the church is. Listening to that, Drew, it, it seems like an admonition to us to, again, evaluate the voices, the stories that are shaping us and influencing us. I've even been struggling with the notion of hope even today at the at the time of this recording and feeling waking up feeling heavy, uh, hopeless in some different ways and and looking around and seeing what are the what are the influences in my life right now? What are the stories that are shaping how I see the world and the constant vigilance, the constant intentionality it takes to renew my mind, to connect with God in a, in a meaningful sense. I've been trying to practice the daily office recently, reading again just about the Benedictine monastics and uh, and dating back all the way. I mean, to Jewish practice and antiquity, Daniel and, and Jesus, they they practice these daily times of prayer, multiple times of prayer. You see that in the New Testament with the disciples and just a, another way to keep God in our consciousness to abide, to try to commune with God throughout the day. And so uh, carving out, trying to carve out several times a day to stop what I'm doing, to center on God, to meditate on a psalm and to pray. And it takes two minutes, but it's amazing how hard it is to kind of break the flow of the day to stop and to re-engage with God. But realizing if I don't do that, and I work for a church, <laughs> I'm, I'm surrounded by uh, a lot of Christian thought and narrative, and yet still the the pervasive power of culture that you're talking about is constantly shaping my psyche, my consciousness, the way that I think about life and and finances and relationships and hope ultimately. And again, the intentionality it takes to reshape that consciousness, to be transformed through the renewal of the mind. And so may we be a people who are vigilant and who are intentional with the stories that we're allowing to shape us in that regard. 
Amen, Mick. Yeah, and I think that's that's such a key point on this is, you know, the church has the possibility of being that alternative community, but I, I think there's a few critical elements to that. One, there, there seems to be these debates at times, I would say, of trying to figure out like bare minimum of what does it mean to be the church? And I think it's this thought of like, how do we reduce church to its to its central essence? You know, and I've heard people even represent that's two or three people gathered or whatever. And I'm not going to disparage any church that gathers. And I think um, some of the great church movements that God's used started very small. So it's not to say that somebody is wrong if that's where they are for a season. But if our vision of church is limited to something that way, or if, if maybe our perspective of church is how are we stripping off all of its elements down to the smallest common denominator, I think that misses the possibility of what the church can be. And I would I would swing the other way and look at maximal influence. <laughs> you know, how, how do I allow myself to be shaped by believers in the broadest sense of that, which for me is time. You know, I, it's not so much like is the right way to do church, house church, Sunday morning, or some prayer house or something else. I'm like, let's do all of it. You know, I, I'm being bombarded by cultural messages. And so I need my church community to have formative power. And that's going to happen when we spend time together. I think what you mentioned, what are practices? And something I love about being anchored in the church is that we have thousands of years of history to stand on. So what are the practices that I can adopt and incorporate, you know, and we, whether it's celebrating Advent or other elements of the church calendar, the daily office, reading and studying theology or, or spending time with people in prayer, you know, there's so many different things you can do, but how am I anchoring myself and learning to live out of a different story? And for me, the point is not any one of those things. I think all of them can be useful. But I don't think any of those things is a silver bullet. And I'm increasingly less enthusiastic about people arguing about the proper structure of a church even. I think instead it's more about do we have a recognition of our fundamental identity? Are we focused more on our character as Christians? Are we embracing our journey as discipleship? And then are we allowing ourselves to be formed together into the image of Christ? And I'd say that's the key point here is that I need to have a community of people around me where we are interacting enough together in time, activity, and we're doing it in the common direction of being formed as disciples of Jesus, that that is allowing us to create this alternative community that is the people of God in the world. And it's out of that, out of the vibrancy of that, that we actually have a witness back to the world. And so, you know, I mean, I think you mentioned earlier, Mick, that the trends we see in society that are so alarming, but we have an opportunity to reverse that. You know, we, in a world that's incredibly lonely, we have an opportunity to, to present a different way of living. And on top of that, we have the active leadership of the Holy Spirit who's teaching us how to live that different way. And we're rooted in thousands of years of history in a world that's easily shaken. We're part of something that's endured far worse and has done it repeatedly over time in a variety of cultural contexts. Like we, we just have so much. There's such a treasure there if we'll see what's in front of us. And I don't want to minimize the fact that there's problems. And, you know, and I think it's fair to acknowledge problems, but I think our acknowledgement of problems should be within the context of having the broader vision of the fact that we get to be a part of the church and this broader vision of how important it is to be the church in this hour. And it's actually out of that positive vision that motivates us then to say, let's tackle what's ever in front of us, maybe whether it's bad assumptions or something else that has maybe hindered the realization of that vision. I I spend a lot of time thinking about that, of realizing what a treasure we have. And at one level, the, the stewardship has been entrusted to us. You know, the church is never ours. Um, the church is Christ and his alone. But there is a stewardship that's been granted to us. Even if you're not involved in vocational ministry or some form of church leadership, you've still been entrusted with something for your short time on earth. And uh, I, I think it's right for us to press into that. 
So hopefully you're encouraged by this dialogue today. I was thinking of a quote recently. I can't remember who I first heard this from, but some pastor somewhere saying that uh, he or she who has the most hope has the most influence. And the world today is looking for hope and for people with deep conviction about the reason for existence and a positive outlook on the future. And uh, may the church, may the church be that beacon of hope today. Thank you for tuning in and we'll catch you next week on Ideology.